0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Starting at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our gods, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith.
1: Now this time next week, starting at Tuesday lunchtime, running through into Wednesday, we have something of a reunion here. I'm very excited about it. I really hope uh, city workers that we will attend here on Tuesday as usual, but It'll be slightly surprising because there will be 200-plus visitors in various forms of attire, people who have been trained here in Christian work over the last 20 years and have now gone out um, and are returning for something of a reunion. Please make sure you come. Part of the aim is that they come and experience a normal Tuesday lunchtime like they did when they were working here and being trained here over the years. But there are people coming from France, Latvia, Belgium, Moldova, Kenya... Norwich, and all other places uh, like that from all over the world, which is thrilling. What do you say to three, 200 church workers who've gone out from here over the last 20 years? What would you say? Now, it just so happens that the two passages we're looking at this week and next are bespoke, perfectly fitted for just such an occasion, uh, the talk I'm about to give now, I'm going to rehash, I'm afraid we're guinea pigs this afternoon, and, uh, and give next Wednesday Tuesday afternoon when everybody's gone, and then next Tuesday at lunchtime we'll have the other talk. Paul's normal practice, having sown the seed of the Christian message in a place, was to return a month or two later, and he would then go back again and again and again We find this pattern repeated across the book of Acts. We call the journeys Paul took missionary journeys, that is true. But at the same time, he was equally concerned for establishing the church. When you think about it, it's like any good organization, actually. You have to have the structures in place, even as you advance. People who don't pay attention to that only last one generation. Paul planted the seed of God's gospel word, the message about Jesus. He returned to establish and to encourage. And therefore, it would be right to say that Paul was every bit the church builder, just as much as a church planter. Now, in Thessalonica, the letter we're reading now, Paul had been unable to follow his usual pattern. Blocked from returning, he sent Timothy to find out how things were going. And then on Timothy's uh, return from Thessalonica to Paul, now in Athens, Paul writes this letter. And so what we have in our hands is a blueprint, if you like, of Paul's message to any church as he seeks to see it established in the Christian faith. So what would Paul say to 200-plus Christian workers, all of whom are in the process of establishing churches across the world? What would Paul say to us? There, There we are in our offices. We're seeking to engage in whatever Christian ministry we're seeking to engage in. What would he say to us about that workplace ministry we're taking part in? Well, this week, as we come to this new section in Paul's letter, he assures the Thessalonians of his confidence that they really are standing firm. Did you notice that beautiful sentence in verse 8 of chapter 3? It tells us about Paul's passion. He says, For now we live since, I mean, it could be since, he's discovered they really are standing firm, since you are standing fast in the Lord. Three marks, actually, even as I speak, I think we'll only have time for two, but three marks that a church or an individual is standing fast. One, they accept the apostolic word and see it for what it is. Two, they expect the world's opposition and see it for what it is. Three, they embrace the apostles' work and see it for what it is the apostolic word. Now, verse 13 of chapter 2 is described by one author as an, unambiguous assertion that the gospel Paul preached was the very word of God. We're used to this kind of thing with the prophets of the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord, they say. We're used to the idea that the disciples of the Lord Jesus, specifically commissioned by him, speak the words of Christ, But here the Apostle Paul makes the precise same claim for his own teaching. Verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Now, isn't it striking that Paul doesn't rebuke the Thessalonians for regarding his words too highly? He commends the Thessalonians for recognizing his word for what it is, the very word of God. You accepted it for what it is, the word of God. So Paul was sent by God. Paul had a message from God. Paul spoke with the authority of God. Do we want to hear God speak? Listen to the apostle Paul. Do we want to know God's view on a matter? Listen to the apostle Paul. Do we want to access foundational truth about this world and eternity? Here it is. But not only did the Thessalonians receive it and accept it, they experienced its power. Within themselves. Do you see that? At the end of verse 13, you accepted it not as the Word of God, but as a, what it really is the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Those two two letter words. Paul had been there some time previously. He'd moved away from them. All they had now, all they had, was the Word of God. But present tense, that word is at work in you believers. We find this across the New Testament. Elsewhere, Paul says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to keep you and give you an inheritance amongst the saints. The letter to the Hebrews, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, I think we find this hard to get hold of because we are mortal and our words, they just fall to the ground. Can we even remember what our boss said to us yesterday morning? Can you remember what you said to yourself this morning? It gets increasingly difficult. We're not God. Our words are not eternal. We are not immortal Our words are not divine. God is immortal. His word is all-powerful. When God, the everlasting God, speaks, his eternal word, though spoken in history, stands forever. And if you like, wherever it lands, it accomplishes his purpose. You accepted it for what it is the word of God, which is at work in, you believers. Uh, Those of you who know the architecture of this building will know over the south transept, that's the south transept just through there, over the door on the outside, as you come in, you'll read the words from Jesus, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Yesterday, today, and forever, when God speaks in history, his eternal word carries his everlasting power wherever it lands across the globe. And, you know, we will have experienced this if we're believers. You know, what happens when we hear the word of God? Oh, it challenges us in our very core. We are changed by it. Now, we're at the back end of uh, about 175 years of liberal skepticism when it comes to the Bible. And so this view is you know, really quite radical in today's age. In 1943, Professor F.F. F. Bruce in Manchester University wrote this little book challenging liberal skepticism. It's called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? By the way, it's it's as brilliant to read today as it was in 1943. F.F. F. Bruce was a great guy. Sadly, I never met him. But his biography came out recently, and I snapped hold of it as quickly as I could. And F.F. F. Bruce, when he wrote this, was asked to speak on the reliability of the Bible again and again and again. You can imagine across all the university Christian unions and so forth, that's what they wanted him to speak on. Eventually, F.F. F. Bruce refused to speak on it. Why? Because the Word of God is its own best defense. Read it. You will see its power. You will see God at work within you if you come to put your faith in Christ, and He will begin radically to transform. Spurgeon put it like this Defend the Word of God? I'd rather defend a lion. Now, I have the great pleasure and joy of reading the gospel accounts one-to-one with one or two other people. I try always to be doing that with one or two other people. And I often say, as we begin to get hold of this, how many people are there in the room? Now, they think I've slightly lost it, and I'm a bit weird, because there are just two of us, self-evidently. But we have the Word of God. I mean, I don't know how many people there are here, 150, something like that. There are 151 God is here, his eternal word, we're reading it, is at work in you believers. So here is the first mark of the church that is is standing, that is established, that is healthy and ready to bear fruit. It's why Tuesday and Thursday lunchtime is so important. It's why the most significant thing you and I can do in any given day is to open our Bible and read it. It's why that small group we attend is so crucial to our well-being. The word of God, which is what it is, which is at work within you. I sometimes say on a Sunday morning, you know, if we don't take God's word seriously, we will remain infantile Christians for the rest of our life. And there's nothing worse than a church full of people in remedial. We want to be grown-ups. Then let the word of God loose. Verse 14, we've managed one verse so far, but verse 14 begins with a connective four. Do you see it there? Four, you brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus, that are in Judea. And from verse 14 through verse 16, and then again in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, Paul speaks of the opposition and the affliction that these believers in Thessalonica have faced. Here is a second mark of health. The word at work within produces an understanding of the world and an expectation of affliction from the world that always hates the good news of Jesus. Now, 14 through 16, and again in chapter 3, Paul identifies seven marks of the world's hostility towards the Thessalonians and to all Christian believers. It's important we recognize that this is not anti-Semitic. It's really important to get hold of that. Paul is describing the hostility of the Jews towards the Christian message in Judea, but then he's saying this is normal. It's what the Thessalonians have come to experience from Gentiles now in Macedonia. Here are the marks. The hostility of the world is directed against Jesus, It's directed against those who speak the words of Jesus, whether the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New. It displeases God. Do you see that there in verse 15? They displease God. It is detrimental to human well-being and flourishing. It opposes mankind. It's against humanity. It is sinful and incurs God's judgment. They fill up the measure of their sins. God's wrath has come upon them. He's not saying, Phew, thank goodness God's wrath has come upon them, but God's wrath really has come upon them. It's satanic, it's normal. Now, you can see that what Paul is doing is telling us this is normal from verse 14. For you, brothers, have become, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So the Jewish hostility in Judea has become normal for the Thessalonians there in Macedonia. They experienced the same thing from their own countrymen who are Gentiles. You can also see that it's normal, this hostility of the world, from verses 3 and 4 back in, uh, over in chapter 3. For you yourselves know that we were destined for these afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. That's great, isn't it? There's no small print with Jesus, no hidden clause in the contract. Jesus told us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. This hostile opposition, this affliction and hostility to the Christian gospel is the constant experience of every Christian in every generation since the arrival of Jesus Christ. It's always been the way. And Jesus explained it like this. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People will do anything to suppress the truth of the gospel. The truth of Jesus is so good. Nonetheless, men and women see God's powerful word challenging and demanding change. And the mark of sin, I will not submit to God. And so by their unrighteousness, people suppress the truth, as Paul puts it elsewhere. In Thessalonica, they formed a mob. They set the city in uproar. They attacked Jason's house. They dragged Jason out of his house because he'd been given hospitality to Paul. They put Jason in front of the town magistrates on trumped-up charges of saying there's a different king to Caesar. But if we are genuinely Christian, this will be our experience. It's normal it's a sign of God's word at work. And it's been the experience of every attempt to advance the Christian gospel down through history. People resist it. I don't know about you, but we kind of, I think a lot of people, we like to think that there's a, a, there was a golden age where the Christian message advanced forward unimpeded with no opposition. There's never been such an age. The word enables us to understand the world. And the word is always opposed by the world. We planted and sought to start, I mean, any number of churches across the city and across London over the last 25 years. And in every case, there have been obstacles. And it's been opposed. And there's been hostility. Hostility. But notice the other ways that Paul describes the opposition of the world to the word. Verse 15 is very striking, isn't it? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God, and oppose all humanity by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. In other words, opposition to the advance of the Christian message is anti-humanitarian. It stands against human flourishing. It prevents human well-being, of course. Because the Christian gospel is a gospel of love, of eternal life, of hope beyond the grave, of reconciliation with God, of redemption, of men and women's lives being put back together by the living God who created us. And so to oppose it is to oppose all humanity. Uh, We could explore this from so many different angles, couldn't we? I mean, you think of where human rights comes from. It comes from the Christian gospel. That's where it comes from. Oppose the Christian gospel and we move back into an age of de-civilization, Uh, Where does the the, the catchphrase, in utmost good faith, come from? Or my word is my bond. I'm sure you know that. I mean, it's the watchword of the city and particularly the insurance market. Where does it come from? The teaching of Jesus. Oppose the teaching of Jesus. It is anti-human flourishing. Certainly bad for business. And yet for some bizarre reason, the companies around here seek to oppose the teaching of Christ. the Apostle Paul, it's anti-humanitarian. He also pushes it further and he describes attempts to prevent him visiting the Thessalonians as Satan opposing us. And he describes the affliction that the Thessalonians are facing as the tempter tempting you. Now, we need to treat this with care. You you can't simply say that any raised eyebrow to a Christian person in the city must be demonic. It may just be that we're particularly objectionable individuals. But it is the case, Paul understands there to be a war on and Satan Satan seeks to prevent the advance of the gospel. He's anti-human flourishing. And therefore, in every company around the city, every school, every public service industry, there will be hostile forces. They may not be self-consciously kind of worshipping the devil. But any attempt to oppose the advance of the gospel is, in Paul's mind, satanic and anti-humanitarian. Anti-human, I wonder if we see things as clearly as he does. It seems then that this second mark of the church that is standing and is established, well, first, yep yeah, they, they accept the word of God for what it is, the very word of the living God that is at work in you. And that causes them to understand the opposition of the world for what it is and to stand against it and I think we haven't got time for the third mark, but it has to do with embracing the apostle and his work. But all of us are used, aren't we, to the idea of key performance indicators and, and the idea of kind of checks on health and, uh, and, and so forth. Ofsted inspectorates, 360 degree assessments. Here is the apostle Paul. How's our health? Say, ah, put your tongue out. Are we still accepting the word of God for what it is? And have we come to see the opposition of the world for what it is? Displeasing to God, set against Jesus Christ and the glory of his gospel, Opposing all of humanity against human flourishing in the city, incurring the wrath and judgment of God, and satanic. Let me lead us in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this extraordinary privilege that you've given us today to hear the truth of your word. We thank you for this promise that your everlasting word is at work in us, even as we read it and consider it. We pray that you would have mercy on the world around us with all the different forms of opposition to the advance of the Christian gospel. Please help us to see it for what it is. And I pray that you would help each one of us to embrace the apostolic ministry, the work of the Christian gospel, for all the joy and delight that it brings. In Jesus' name, amen.